Welcome to another episode of Black Women Think, where black women and those who love them think at the intersections of race, gender, and religion toward the flourishing of black women everywhere. I am your host, Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman, and this is a Black Women Think production. Let's go. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in today. I'm so glad to be back uh, in the studio um, on this, what is it, Monday evening. It's actually Memorial Day. Um, And I thought that we'd begin today with, of course, the Black Woman of the Week, even though I'm a few weeks late. You all have to forgive me. Um, But I want to big up Nicole Hannah-Jones, who um, earlier this month was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Commentary for her The 1619 Project, which was the New York Times Magazine's feature on the legacy of Black people in America, beginning with the first Africans to arrive in the colonies, what would come to be the United States in 1619, actually in Jamestown, which was an Anglican colony uh, and the religious uh, dimensions of that I'm actually writing about right now. But Nicole Hannah-Jones Project is a collection of 10 essays by some of the most intriguing contemporary Black American thinkers and activists out there. Um, And they are tracking their critical reflections on the roots of slavery and its afterlives in contemporary African America. Now, Hannah's essay, which is the first essay of the 10, is is remarkable all around. And of course, you know, you don't need me to make that judgment. She is a Pulitzer Prize winner. But I mean, it really is just remarkable work. And um. One of the things of the many, um, the many things that stand out in her essay, but one of the really remarkable things um, that really stood out for me was the way that Hannah Jones um, narrates the contributions of black people through an economic and a moral lens. Even though she, um, she self-describes herself as not religious at all, but she does this wonderful job of kind of um, thinking through uh, black people in the U.S. through um, economy and through morality. And the way she does it is so resonant um, within the context of this COVID-19 pandemic uh, and how we understand essential work and who we understand to be the essential workers and how this sort of essential identity um, lends itself to the disproportionate casualties um, of the virus uh, in terms of um, uh, those who are largely thought to be non-essential, but are actually the fundaments of American society. Uh, I'm talking about black people and brown people um, who are non-essential, but the most essential. I mean, she, she just does a beautiful job of showing how this thinking about 
um, essence, right? Um, and black essence, right? Who we are um, in our in our being um, is um, how 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 this takes form from really the beginnings of American um, slaveocracy, of course, through the indentured servitude of um, those first arrivals in the um, uh, American colonies. So. I could go on and on and on about um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and her brilliant work, but you just have to read it for yourself. It's available online, of course, through the New York Times Magazine website. Again, it's titled The 1619 Project. You really should have read it already because it's been out for, for a year, but if you have not uh, and you need some extra reading to do because you are at home and you know you are quarantined or you're staying in and you just want to um want to really um stretch your mind and and think deeply this is the place to start my last point on um the black woman of the week again big up to nicole hannah jones uh pulitzer prize winner for commentary um my last point here is that Ida B. Wells Barnett, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, her Twitter handle is Ida Baywells, but Ida B. Wells Barnett, um, who was a 19th century journalist and black social gospeler. We tend not to tell the story of black women who were also social gospelers, um, but she was a black social gospeler. She, um, you know, is renowned for her um, crusade against lynching, uh, and, um, authored the red record, um, that really brought, um, among other things, right. But it really brought, called attention to what was happening, uh, around, um, lynching and specifically the lynching of black men, um, in, in the American South. Anyway, Ida B. Wells Barnett, was also um, posthumously given a Pulitzer Prize citation alongside Nicole Hannah-Jones, also known as Ida Baywells. And it's just really interesting. I wanted to name this. Ida B. Wells Barnett is, um, you know, one of my personal um, kind of proto-womanist, um, you know, heroes. And... Um, you know, a model in terms of the intersection of her faith and her social activism. Anyway, a 125 years ago, um, the New York Times called Ida B. Wells Barnett, quote, a slanderous, nasty-minded mulatress, end quote. A slanderous, nasty-minded mulatress. That's what they called 125 years ago. Um, and this month, 2020, they awarded her a Pulitzer Prize. So there's a lot, I guess, that could be said about that. Um, I don't even know where to start, but you all tell me what you think about it. Um, my, I just want to shout out the life, the love, the legacy, the work, the ministry of Ida B. Wells Barnett. I want to shout out, shout 
shout out her life. Um, I want to kind of just big up the ancestor, um, the ancestral spirit, um, and give her, um, um, accolades and send, um, send her peace for blazing the trail for really the rest of us as black women who are working, um, at the interstices of faith and social activism on behalf of and alongside of black people. Um, and especially for blazing the trail for Nicole Hannah Jones to come out, um, uh, to come out in this year, 2020 as a Pulitzer prize winner. Um, it kind of reminds me of the story of Vashti and Esther, you know, Vashti was put out, she was demonized, you know, and, um, you know, it, it, it left room. I mean, we can interpret that many ways, but, um, it made some space for Esther to come and save a people, you know what I'm saying? Um, so black women, we've been through, um, just about hell and back, but we always, we always make a way, you know, we always make a way. And with the example of um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ida B. Wells, we see that even posthumously, you know, black women are making a way for those that come behind. So big up to the black women of the week. I want to turn our attention now to the social spotlight um, for uh, this week's episode. Um, the social spotlight this week is going to Erin Keys. Erin is the founder of Black Girls Theology. It's a digital ministry platform that articulates and promotes God talk that is reflective of and accountable to the lives and life chances of Black girls and the Black women who love them. So I um, just want to shine a spotlight on Erin for the great work that she's doing. I will be talking with Erin about all things Black church, Black and Womanist Theology on Thursday, May 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Again, that's Thursday, May 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can join the conversation between Aaron and myself um, on Facebook Live at Black Girls Theology. I hope to see you in the virtual building. I want to take a moment before we get to the ebony thought of this week, um, to let you all know what I'm reading uh, over the next few uh, weeks, the next month or so. I'm reading a lot, but I want to highlight um, probably three things. Uh, I'm reading first The Chiffon Trenches, which is a memoir by my dear friend, uh, Andre Leon Talley. Andre in this book, recounts his fascinating story that begins in uh, Durham, North Carolina, the segregated South, of course, and that kind of leads him to the runways of Paris, to the New York offices of Vogue, and into um, the, the brutally kind of racist global fashion industry. And it is brutal, y'all. So um, it's a compelling story of a black man, of a queer man, of his faith and of his struggle to um, become the most influential man in fashion. Um, so it's hot off the press. I actually got um, 
an advanced copy and uh, but it sat on my um, on my desk for um, a couple of weeks. But it is hot off the press now. You can get it at any of your um, uh, your favorite um, book retailers. And you definitely want to pick this up, especially if you, um, you know, if you are into fashion and faith and just uh, black excellence all around. You got to pick this up. I'm also rereading this week Anthea Butler's Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. So this um, uh, book was written or published a few years ago, but it is a classic, uh, a classic black feminist treatment of women, um, uh, women in religion. And she is arguing for the particularity of black women's civic and economic power in Kojic, um, in contrast to claims of black women's general disempowerment in black churches. Um, so I think that it's a critical text for anyone who's interested in black church studies. It is so well written and so rich. Each sentence is like is like a gold mine of language. Um, so if you're interested in, you know, black church studies, kind of broadly construed, black church women's studies, um, anyone interested in the feminist corpus, black feminist corpus, excuse me, of black religious history, you need to cop this book and get your read on. And the last thing that I'm working through right now is, um, is a classic. Uh, it is a classic text. I think all of the books that I've mentioned will be classic, um, you know, sooner or later. But I'm also rereading uh, The Black Church in the African-American Experience by C. Eric Lincoln and Lawrence H. Mamiya. Um, classic text, 1999, off of Duke Press. You know, again, if you want, you know, if you want to kind of think deeply about um, the identity of the black church. If you want to think deeply about where we've been and, and where we are, especially in this moment of digital church, um, by coercion, um, I would highly recommend picking up, um, Lincoln and Mamiya's the black church in the African-American experience. It is good stuff. We're in quarantine y'all. Life is you know, good some moments, a little sour some moments, but I want to encourage you to continue to expand your mind, expand your thoughts through reading. The Bible says it like this, study to show yourself approved. And yes, we want to do Bible study. Of course, that is, you know, critical for those of us who um, are um, rooted and steeped in the faith. But, you know, you can read other things too. Um, you can read other things too. So expand your thoughts, expand your mind. And I want you to email me. I want you to email me and let me know what you are reading and maybe I can feature it on the show. Um, hit me up at ebony, E-B-O-N-I at marshallterman.com. Ebony at marshallterman.com. Let me know what you're reading so I can feature it on the show. All right. So now we're going to turn to what I've been thinking about um, over the past couple of weeks, right? So I know I'm about two weeks late on my episode, but there's just been so much going on that 
you know, this, um, I've been thinking about as many of you have, um, really everything and anything, unfortunately related to the public health crisis that we are all living through right now. Um, and this past, the past few weeks, I've been thinking specifically about personal protective equipment. Um, that's also known as PPE, you know, all the stuff that we couldn't get, um, the masks, things like that, that we were originally told not to wear, which was, I don't even know. I'm glad I didn't listen to that because I've been wearing my mask since day one. But, um, you know, personal protective equipment, um, and in its most simple form, right, we know personal protective equipment can be um, a mask, it can be goggles, it can be gloves, it can be, you know, a gown, it can be a hazmat suit, it can be all kinds of things, um, uh, you know, c- hair covers, I mean, PPE comes in many different forms, but the most um, simple and probably best known form of personal protective equipment is a mask. Now, three months ago, I would have never imagined that I'd ever be thinking <laughs> about personal protective equipment or masks. I, I just, <sighs> oh God. But as the great hymn of the church says, time is filled with swift transition. And I've been thinking about masks and other forms of PPE and other forms of personal protective practices like social distancing or what some call physical distancing because we still want to remain want to retain rather some um, sense of sociality even though we can't actually be together uh, in a physical way um, but I've been thinking about all of this because of how black people um, in a particular way have been policed around these new interventions. So in a nutshell, um, some statistics were released over the past two weeks or so um, that reveal that in New York City, which is where I currently am, right? As of May 8th, of the 40 people who have been arrested um, for some sort of social distancing violation in New York, of the 40, 35 were black. That's a pause because we need a pause. We just need a pause there. Of the 40 who were arrested for some, so it's not even funny, for some sort of social distancing violation, 35 of them were black, which means that Approximately 88% of arrests for social distancing violations were arrests of black people. When black people make up only 25% of New York City's population. That, my friends, my dear listeners, is what you call disproportionate representation. When you are 25% of the population, but you make up 88% of the 
of the arrests. It is also what you call racially biased policing, okay? Because the way that white freedom is set up in these New York streets, and I've seen it for myself, okay? I actually live in a predominantly white neighborhood in New York. And for kicks, I took a drive through the city on Sunday to see what people were doing, you know, on a Sunday morning amidst COVID in the epicenter. So I drove around the entire um, island of Manhattan and my husband and my children. We, we also had to get out the house because <sighs> sis was, you know, she was about to lose it. So we got out. And what I saw was white people with no masks, white people with no behavior as it relates to social distancing and just really free as a lark, right? Um, Running and bicycling through the, um, through the very narrow, um, uh, you know, narrow uh, breezeways in the park. And I also saw that the police, okay, amidst no mask, no social distancing, right? The police had the nerve to be handing out masks to the white social distance violators. Now, let me back up and just say that I recognize that it's not only that there's not, um, Social distance violations is not a race thing, right? Like you got white social distance violators and you've got black social distance violators and you got, you know, everybody else. Okay. Social distance violating. Okay. So I do want to say that, but I want to show some distinctions here, given the disproportionate representation that black people have as it relates to actual arrests for social distance violations in New York City. So the police were handing out masks to social distance violators who happen to be white. Um, while in other parts of the city, we have on tape recorded police violently attacking and arresting social distance violators who are black. The blacks, they were not lined up, okay, um, with masks on hand, okay? The blacks did not get a mask and a quote, please remember the social distance, coke and a smile, okay? No, they got knocked out handcuffed and taken into custody. But that's not even the whole story. If it ended there, I would take a deep breath. You know, I would call on the name of the Lord. And I would just sit back and shake my head again. But here's, here's the thing. The kicker, right? is that when the police commissioner was called out or rather was called to account for racial bias in relation 
to the social distance violation arrest where 88% of the arrests were of black people who make up 25% of the population. Instead of him admitting that there actually is a problem of racial bias and that it's a problem that will be addressed and corrected um, for the safety of all people. Um, instead of him saying that there would be serious changes and that all would be held accountable for wearing masks, social distancing, and supporting a healthy New York City, New York City, excuse me, the commissioner just said, like, he just said, well, we're no longer going to enforce social distancing. That's another pause for emphasis because I can't believe what I'm actually saying to y'all, right? He said, we are no longer going to enforce social distancing. Essentially, since we can't brutalize and arrest Negroes anymore without being called to account for our racist police tactics, right? Um, because we have to practice equity in our policing strategies, which means we might have to arrest white people who violate public safety and public health by refusing to wear masks and keeping six feet distance because they could care less if they get someone else sick. Because of that, we're calling time out. We're screaming no fair. We're saying we're not playing anymore even if it means that many more will have to die. We're not going to enforce social distancing anymore because people are calling us out for being racist. I mean, so on the one hand, you have a camp of people who are like, and I know I'm gonna get some flack for this, but I don't care. Because you have some people on the one hand saying, you know, great, the police, the NYPD is not going to enforce social distancing, right? Which, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I understand the sentiment, right? Because there are problems with the NYPD, right? We all know this. I mean, we all know this. I, I don't even want to start recounting the names, right? Because I have to go um, way, you know, way back. This didn't just start with Eric Garner. May God bless the dead, right? But this goes way back, right? So we know there are problems with the NYPD, but let me tell you something. In a city like New York City, you know, no one enforcing social distancing is not a great idea. It's not a great idea. We actually need someone or something to enforce the public health safety or public health protection of New Yorkers. The problem is that the people who are charged with doing that have decided that they can't do it, that they won't do it because they are being held accountable for being racist while doing it. If we can't be racist while doing it, then we won't do it at all. Um, sis, send help. There's a problem. There is a problem. I don't know how to say it any other way. There's a problem. Sis, send help.
All right, now it's time for the soul glow of the week. With this kind of nonsense going on in these COVID streets, in addition to Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor being murdered over the past few weeks, and the fact that black people, I mean, the fact that black people have to wear masks and we just get murdered for being at home, for taking a jog, for looking at the scenery. I mean, now we got to wear masks too. I I had to meditate on the word and allow my soul to glow for a minute. And for this week, um, I turned to, my meditation was on Philippians 4 and 6. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guide your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's so much in that scripture, and I really can't help but be a little bit anxious because this is some craziness. I mean, everyone I talk to is like, says the same thing. Everybody's like, this is, this is crazy. Like, we actually, <laughs> we don't know what's really going on. Um, anyway, um, so what I've been focusing on about that or what I've been trying to focus on about in terms of that scripture is this call for giving thanks, for giving thanks, right? Because it seems to me that if Paul is telling the church at Philippi to be anxious for nothing, there's obviously something going on that would compel some anxiety. And and he he is saying that amidst that anxiety, right? Pray, you know, ask for what you need, but through it all give thanks. And so, you know, in my prayer and in my petition, you know, I think I have that on wraps. I, you know, I I'm I'm praying and I know what I what I'm asking for, right? I don't necessarily know all I need, but I know what I'm asking for. Um, but I've been trying to be attentive to, um, giving thanks. Right. And, um, I wouldn't say keeping a gratitude journal, but I am trying to just account. I should probably keep a gratitude journal. I should dust the journal off, um, in my nightstand, you know, right now. In fact, maybe I'll do that tonight, but you know, what are you thankful for? What are you giving thanks for um, through it all? You know, some of us have buried loved ones, um, had to attend funerals virtually. Um, You know, some of us may have been sick ourselves and, you know, are still trying to recover from COVID-19. You know, the fact that we are distanced from our communities, be they faith communities, be they um, other kinds of social communities, from our jobs even. And many of us, I mean, although most people complain some about work, many of us, you know, like our work. We like what we do. Um, Maybe I should say some of us, maybe many is an overstatement. But, you know, some of us have lost our jobs. You know, we don't have an income. We're trying to get through to unemployment. Like the list can go on and on. We can't see our family. It's crazy. Uh, But what ought we give thanks for, you know? Uh, I've been thinking about that for myself. First of all, that I do have my health, that my family is healthy. You know, my mother is an essential worker, so she's still going to work every day. And um, 
I just thank God that she is, um, you know, maintaining her health and, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I have a lot to be thankful for. I have food, you know, on my table. Um, you know, um, I have a home to be in, right. That is, you know, I mean, it's a little stressful from time to time, you know, you know, husband and wife, spouses are home all the time. We used to kind of leave in the morning and come back in the evening. Now we're in each other's faces 24-7. But my home is, is safe and um, my children are safe. I mean, there's, there, there are um, things to be grateful for. That's all I really want to say. Um, so let your soul glow. My friends, let your soul glow, even though COVID is trying to stamp our glow out. Um, And uh, yeah, and may the peace of God, uh, which passes all understanding, um, guide your heart and mind, keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I want to um, big up the Sister Deans, uh, a few announcements uh, before we close out. This episode, I want to big up the Sister Deans um, um, on IG Live, Instagram Live, hosted by Reverend Dr. Nichelle Guidry, who is the Dean of Sisters Chapel at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Reverend Dr. Dominique Robinson, who is the Dean of Chapel at Wiley College in Marshall, Texas. Every Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Deans Guidry and Robinson host an insightful, provocative Black womanist conversation on Christian faith, higher education, and Black life from the critical perspective of HBCU leadership. These sisters are, um, they are just so richly, overwhelmingly anointed, guided by the Spirit, and you know, they are black excellence. So you don't want to um, miss this fantastic dialogue that they are having every week. Again, it's um, Sunday afternoons, early evenings at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's 3 p.m. Central. I encourage you to tune in to Instagram um, to, to see Sister Deans um, on IG Live. You can follow them or watch them either at Nichelle G., at N-E-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G or at Dominique Aisha, which is D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-A-Y-E-S-H-A. So at Nichelle G or at Dominique Aisha, listen in, tune in, Instagram, and be blessed. Remember that I'll be in conversation with Black Girls Theology on Facebook Live. That's with Erin Keys on Thursday March, um, March, I'm sorry, March, May 28th. I'm stuck in March when all this started to fall apart. Anyway, it's going to be Thursday, May 28th. That's this Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can catch me at Black Girls Theology on Facebook. Come and check it out. So next episode, I'm going to um, try to fit in some listener letters. If you have questions or need advice, or want me to think with you on a subject at the intersection of race, gender, and religion, send me a note to ebony, E-B-O-N-I, at Marshall Terman. That's my last name, y'all. No hyphen. Ebony at MarshallTerman.com. 
and your letter may be featured on the show. Saints and ain'ts. That does it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, yeah, thank you for joining me. To all the thinking black women and those who love us, who are listening in, I'll be back next week thinking about race, gender, and religion. Until then, keep the faith.